0: So imagine you meet somebody and they have never heard of the Iliad. How do you tell them, what is this book that we're talking about today?
1: It's the story of the Trojan War. Now, what is the Trojan War? If you ask an archaeologist, they will say, well, there were so many of them, we can't even count them. The way the story is told, it's as if it all happened at one time. And that one time was a very long time, ten years but even when it comes to those 10 years, the Iliad that we have, which is 15,000 plus verses, is focused only on some days of the 10th year of the Trojan War.
0: The story centers on the Greek warrior Achilles and the Greek king Agamemnon, who were fighting against the Trojans and against each other. It is among the oldest surviving works of literature and it's still read in classrooms around the world. But for a long time, the Iliad wasn't written down.
1: This is a medium where you don't read what is written, you hear what is transmitted orally, generation after generation.
0: The written version of the text is generally dated to the 7th or 8th century BCE, but the story is likely centuries older. The person who is credited with writing this epic work is Homer. In ancient Greece, Homer was an icon,
1: Well, Homer is an idealized culture hero who is credited with producing the most perfect form of poetry ever created.
0: He was the perfect author, a single man who wrote the best story there was. But we still don't know if Homer deserves this credit. It's more likely that the Iliad was composed by many ancient storytellers, a lot of whom were women.
1: If you ask, about the creativity that goes into the Iliad. How much of it is male creativity and how much of it is female creativity? I would say without prejudice that it's about 60% female creativity because so much of what is talked about has to do with expression of sadness over human suffering, especially human suffering that leads to death. And in the song culture that produced the Iliad, there's a very important component, which is where women lament the dead. They lament the death of their dear ones. And that lamentation is a form of art as well as a form of physical expression. You can cry while you sing and sing while you cry, but that is built into this medium.
0: The Iliad is a story of war, but not in the way you might think. It's not about the triumphs of battle, but about the painful realities of war. Consider what the ancient Greek philosopher Plato wrote.
1: When Plato says, oh, Homer teaches us about war, you know what that really means? Homer teaches us about the human condition what it is like to face death in warfare, and facing death is, is something that's done not only by the warrior, it's also all the loved ones who will be affected by whether somebody is, is killed or brutally wounded or disappears forever in a war. It's all about the sorrow of war.
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk to one of the world's leading scholars about the impact one book had. For this episode, I spoke with Gregory Naj, a Harvard professor of classical Greek literature and comparative literature and the director of the Center for Hellenic Studies. I talked with Professor Naj about the Iliad, a story that has influenced the world for over 3,000 years. But the Iliad isn't just a story. For the ancient Greeks, it was history.
1: For these people... Everything that happened really happened. Everything that anybody says, whether it's a hero or whether it's a god, was really said, really spoken. We're dealing with a world where myth was truth. It was a society's way of expressing true moral values by way of what you and I call storytelling.
0: And so to be an educated, civilized Greek... You would study these works? Were were these publicly performed during certain ritual times? Yes.
1: These gigantic poems were performed at the festival of Our Lady of Athens, Athena.
0: But ancient Greeks didn't just hear this epic poem once.
1: You're doing this from early childhood and you keep on doing it until you die. And it's the same thing notionally each time. And it is hardwired into your mind and heart. Eventually, it gets written down, and that's the only reason why we have it. But I'd like you to think about this other world where it's uh, not a question of writing, where the medium doesn't depend on writing. Everything depends on the faithful hearing of what is being told by listeners. And I don't like to say audience because when I hear audience, I think of people sitting in an auditorium with folded arms, uh, ready to like or dislike, accept or not accept. I'm talking about a group mentality where uh, those who are speaking and those who are listening are part of a community and feel that they are a community.
0: So shifting a, a bit. To go back to the way that the story was embedded in life i can imagine that parents would say to their children be like achilles in this regard or be like helen or be like hector and they were used as models for life
1: somebody like achilles who is the number one hero of the iliad the ancients admired him passionately but the ancients were also already shocked at some of the things that he was capable of doing. Yes, he's larger than life, but that means that if he makes mistakes, those mistakes too are larger than life. And can I play with percentages? And this is just subjective. I would say 80% of the time, he is somebody who is so admirable. Oh, I wish I could be like him. But then there's 20% where he's so unspeakably cruel or even tone-deaf about what's going on, you say to yourself, I never want to be like that. So yes, models, but selective
0: modeling. The Iliad was hugely important to the ancient Greeks, but it's not enough to talk about the Iliad alone.
1: When people think about why is the Iliad so important, they have to keep in mind the other bookend, which is the Odyssey.
0: A sequel to the Iliad. It is another epic poem that is also attributed to Homer. The Odyssey tells the story of Odysseus, a Greek warrior who fought alongside Achilles in the Trojan War. But although Odysseus fought at Troy, he is not the hero, and this knowledge haunts him.
1: Here's one way to put it, um, Odysseus himself, if he is going to become a star of Homeric epic, has to do it in such a way that he has to get over Troy. He has to get over the fact that Achilles will dominate the Trojan War story. And so the only way Odysseus can compete is by literally
0: sailing past the Iliad. On his voyage home, Odysseus sails past a land filled with mythical creatures called sirens. The sirens attempt to lure Odysseus to his death by promising to sing him a song.
1: What they say, literally, is we know everything in the world And we also know everything that happened at Troy.
0: Odysseus wants to hear the story of Troy, and he wants to hear himself celebrated as the hero.
1: But you see, if he stayed at the Island of the Sirens and listened to his exploits at Troy, he'd still be there. Odysseus has to make his own epic by going back home successfully and reclaiming his kingship. Usually everything that is very important in Greek civilization has a rival.
0: The Iliad's rival is the Odyssey.
1: Homer is the most important poet in all Greek civilization, but he has a rival too called Hesiod.
0: Hesiod was another celebrated Greek poet. Two of his complete epics survive today, Theogony and Works and Days. But while these works, and Hesiod himself, were foundational to ancient Greeks... Homer is the one we remember now. So once the story gets written down and is foundational to Greek society, um, it's part of education, it's part of being civilized, take us a little past that time. So it then gets carried into Roman culture. And then through the influence of the Roman culture, it continues to be seen as sort of the urtext of civilization. What's your understanding of the continuing impact that the Iliad had in culture from the Greek period onward?
1: Think back all the way to the split between the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, Once that happens, essentially, the Homeric legacy is cut off from the West— and really can't get back there till the Western Renaissance. Meanwhile, in the East, uh, the Homeric Iliad and the Homeric Odyssey together are chugging along as the number one piece of literature, and it always stayed as number one. There never was any lapse in the reception of Homeric tradition
0: The Iliad and the Odyssey remained influential through the Byzantine Empire, also known as the Eastern Roman Empire. And of the two Homeric works, the Iliad was always the more important.
1: The hard fact is that the Odyssey was never more important than the Iliad in Greek traditions. It's different with the Virgilian transmission.
0: The Homeric tradition lived on in the West thanks to Virgil an ancient Roman poet who lived from the 1st century BCE to the 1st century CE. Virgil authored an epic 12-scroll poem called The Aeneid, which tells the story of a Trojan hero who appeared in the Iliad. Virgil modeled the tale after the Iliad and the Odyssey, but there was one significant change. The first six
1: scrolls of the Aeneid are an homage to the Odyssey. And only the next six scrolls are an homage to
0: the Iliad. That is a very serious flip in values. So in the Latin-speaking West, the reading uh, and appreciation of the Homeric Iliad wanes. And the Aeneid presumably is the way that people are familiar with at least that heritage. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the context and the circumstances in which it becomes rediscovered?
1: So once we get to late Renaissance, then the Age of Enlightenment, and then modernity in the West, the Iliad becomes more and more important until we reach today where, as we look back at the most recent centuries, uh, the Iliad towers over most other forms of Greek literature and, in fact, most
0: other forms of literature, period. The European Renaissance was characterized by a new emphasis on ancient texts, like the Iliad, and a focus on the human world, rather than the divine. The thinkers and artists behind this movement are called humanists. Did the Iliad and you know the Odyssey together, did these texts give strength to humanistic impulses of thinking about if this world is all we have, if human values are all that we have, um, what, what resources do you think some of these humanists found in these texts?
1: I think the best way to put it is that the heroes of the Iliad and Odyssey, but let's concentrate on the heroes of the Iliad and let's concentrate on Achilles, are even more interesting than the gods. What can be better than that? And in many ways, their suffering, their facing of mortality makes them more interesting and more important for um, modernity where the values of um, belief and afterlife or belief at all are questioned here we have a world where there are no beliefs in fact you can't find a word that really means belief the way we say I believe in God or, to be new age about, and I hate this expression, I believe in myself. Uh, There is no such thing in the Greek language. For that matter, there's no such thing in the pre-Christian Latin language either. You don't believe in somebody. What you do is you have a set of values, and you hope that your own personal cosmos will match the cosmos that is out there. But basically, that's it. And sure, I spent eternities in my study of Homeric poetry showing that even Homeric poetry had built into it um, the idea of afterlife, but it is glossed over. It's more important for Homeric poetry to see how interesting it is to face mortality, to face your own death, and not be sure
0: of what happens after that. There's a... Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor. And he wrote a book called A Secular Age. And he has this phrase to describe the environment in which we all live, where belief in God is not really taken for granted. It's not particularly alive. And he calls it the imminent frame. And in the imminent frame, this life is all we have. And when you think about the Iliad, the clash of bodies, and the clash of wills, and the only mortality available really, or at least what one can perceive, is glory.
1: It seems to be the case. That is the Iliadic um, emphasis. It's definitely that. And um, thoughts of afterlife are de-emphasized. I'm not saying they're absent altogether, but that's not what it's all about.
0: Many characters in the Iliad do die, and even some gods come close. Ares, the god of war, for example, has a brush with mortality,
1: he goes through the motions of death in the Iliad, but our impression is it's funny because we know the gods can't die, whereas when humans die, it's for real, and it's that reality of death that, um, that really stays with you. Plato's Socrates often says, well, the Iliad is the best handbook for understanding war, Homer might as well be a general. And people misunderstand that. People think, oh, if I read the Iliad, I'll understand military tactics. No. What is really being said, and sometimes in a joking way by Plato, Socrates, is the Iliad teaches you how to die, how to face death, how to be immortal.
0: So let's go back to the Age of Enlightenment and beyond, you know, in depictions of English, and American prep schools. It's a fixture. To be sophisticated is to, you know, read the Iliad. Um, What can you tell us about the place of it in elite education? I would agree with you that
1: um, the Iliad, to focus on the Iliad, but I would also say the same for the Odyssey, is in its earlier years, for the elite only— But I would say it becomes very popular. And because of its earthiness, there's a resonance with people who are not elite. And I think of all the people after World War II who were on the GI Bill and who read the Iliad in translation for the first time in college, or how after the trauma of the Vietnam War, um, veterans— can really relate to the Iliad the way they can't relate to Virgil's Aeneid. I'm not putting down Virgil's Aeneid, but I'm saying there's something very visceral, something beyond elite. And in general, I would say the reception of the Iliad is as strong as it is, not because of elite uh, strata of education, but because it has percolated, I think, all the way down, and it's a grassroots phenomenon of reception, especially in the United States.
0: I'm so fascinated by, by the stories you just mentioned. Do you have any more details about former soldiers reading this text?
1: Well, I still remember um, having as one of my students a um, a very smart person, and she once brought her dad to class. And dad turned out to be Jonathan Shea, who wrote a very influential book called Achilles in Vietnam and um, then followed up with a book on Odysseus. And here was a professional healer of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder who discovered that um, contact with the Iliad is a healing medium. And that's just one example. in in general, the trauma of war needs the kind of healing that the Homeric Iliad can offer, and I, I've seen it.
0: It's such a profoundly beautiful thing to think of these PTSD sufferers who read a work of literature and find healing in it. Exactly, e- exactly. Uh, the Iliad is a source of healing.
1: So that's what I think Plato's Socrates means when he says that The Homeric Iliad teaches about war. It's it's not about military maneuvers, believe me.
0: How, in your judgment, has the Iliad changed the world? The Iliad has changed the world by
1: making us never think of war the way we did before. It'll change our minds and hearts about what war is, and therefore what death in war is. And I think that's a very important contribution to uh, our understanding of humanity. And here's a medium that doesn't uh, preach peace because it comes from a world where peace was impossible. So it's how how to engage with life with the evil of war always intruding in ways sometimes that we can't predict. How do we stay human? How do we struggle to stay human?
0: It's a beautiful answer and I I imagine if you don't really know this work you could think that it glorifies violence.
1: It so doesn't. Sometimes when you read the Iliad you feel stunned by all the violence but um, The violence which is programmatically described with great accuracy, with stunning realism, is um, I think a a way to connect with the suffering of humanity. And um, there are many cues for how to connect by way of how the story is told. It's a very compassionate telling. And I like the fact that Achilles, the number one hero of the Iliad, means he who has the sorrow of the people. Sorrow is primarily expressed in this civilization by the singing of songs, primarily by women. And so when Achilles has a name like he who has the sorrow of the people, that shows you this is not some uh, exercise in macho entertainment. Oh, how exciting we're going to see scenes of violence which only men like to see because oh they're so tough and macho it's it's really um all the pain that goes with war and and uh, to me if you ask me what makes the iliad so special why is it a world classic maybe the world classic it it's that it expresses human sorrow so beautifully, so creatively, that you'll never be the same after you experience these beautiful lines. And if I may cheat and say one thing about the Odyssey, the most beautiful moment, I think, in the Odyssey is when Helen, who is now safely back in Sparta and is being hostess to Telemachus, who's trying to find his father and is frustrated at every turn, um, Helen says to Telemachus and to the hosts who are hosting Telemachus, including her husband, Menelaus, now all of you sit back, relax, and I'm going to tell you an epic. And before she does that, she puts into the drink of those who are going to listen to a story of Troy. And what is the story of Troy? It's an Iliad. Uh, She, um, in a sense, cancels The value of epic the value of the iliad because the drug that she puts into the drink is called nepenthes, which means non-lamentation and it's described as a drug where if you take it even if your loved ones are slaughtered in front of you you'll say wow that is a great piece of epic entertainment so epic without compassion is drugged epic and is not real And the only way epic can become real, and that's what the Iliad is all about, is to experience the violence of war in every gory detail, because ultimately it is a purifying experience. To use the Greek word, it is cathartic.
0: Rit Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchi. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Rit Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.